So Luke chapter 6, we are in verses 12 through 19 today. Let's go ahead and read, and then we will jump right in. It says, Now it came to pass in those days that he, speaking of Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles, Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. And so we have started the book of Luke months ago. We understand that Luke is a historian, and by trade, he is a doctor. He is uh, getting insight from the people who were a part of everything that is happening that we're reading about. And so we have, it's, it's almost like we're just reading a history book here of, of the account of Jesus. And so we see the beginning of Jesus in, in the first part of Luke where um, Jesus is born, we get to the point where he starts his ministry. We don't, we don't see much of Jesus' life at the beginning, right? We, we see the birth of Jesus. We celebrate that every Christmas. And then we see him again around 12 years old. And then we see him again when he's about 30, right? So between being born and 30 years old, we only have really one instance and one story of him of when he is uh, preaching at 12 years old. So then we get into his life, into his ministry at the beginning of 30. And so as he's, when he's 30, he starts his ministry that God called him to do, which is to preach the gospel and to prepare the way and to become the sacrifice for all of mankind. And so for about three to three and a half years, he's going to spend time with what we call the disciples or the apostles, the ones that he is going to teach and pour into, because once Jesus dies, he is no longer going to be with us on earth, Right? We see him ascend into heaven where he's sitting at the right hand of God and he's making intercession on in our behalf. That's, that's great. Like, I need him there. I want him there. That's exactly what he said he was doing and that is what he is doing. And yet he also said, I won't leave you as orphans, right? I'm not going to leave you alone. So on his behalf, he sends who? The Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit comes along. And now we as born-again believers, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And there's a lot of things that the Holy Spirit does, but one of the things is that he is a seal unto our salvation, which we see in Ephesians chapter 1. And so Jesus, again, during these three years before he, he dies, he's calling these, these men, right? We saw one time when he's, when he's speaking to Matthew, he says, follow me, right? And he's, he says it to Peter, you know, follow me. He, and he gets all these disciples to start to following him. And there's a reason for it is because he needs to disciple them. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What is a disciple? What does that word mean? What does that person do? And it's important because Jesus was leaving, and so he needed men, he needed good men who were full of the Holy Spirit, who were able to lead, who were able to make more disciples. 
right? That's what discipleship is about. It's, it's making disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. Because if you think about it, the church, when it all started, it all starts with Jesus because he's the head. And then he calls these 12 leaders. We're going to lose one of them because we see in this section here that he's a traitor. But then they add one, right, with Matthias. So then there's 12, and it's with these 12, these 12 apostles, these 12 disciples, that the church is formed, that the foundation of the church is beginning, that they would plant churches here and there, that they would disciple other men to bring them up. And from that is where we get the church today. It's amazing. So all the work that these men did is now evident in what we see today. And obviously it started with one man and one God, Jesus Christ, as he calls his disciples here, as we see in Luke chapter 6. So it says in verse 12 that it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. I don't know what it is, but usually like the nighttime is, is sometimes just like the hardest times that we, we go through. And sometimes it's, it's the time where we are not at ease in our spirit and where God is calling us to pray. And so Jesus goes and he leaves the multitudes, right? He leaves his disciples so that he is one-on-one with God the Father. Now, you may be thinking, why does Jesus have to pray? Maybe you're not thinking that earlier, but maybe you're thinking it now because I just said it. Why did Jesus have to pray? Isn't he God? Right? I mean, you could ask that question for a lot of things that Jesus did. Well, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Why did Jesus have to do this? Why did Jesus have to do that? Why did Jesus have to, you know, fast? You know, all these things of why did Jesus have to do it? One of the things that we can come up with is that Jesus wanted to. That Jesus was not only God, but he was also man. And he did a lot of the things that he accomplished on earth as a man, right? He did a lot of things on earth so that we, as men, as humans, women, men, that we can relate to God and that God can relate to us. So he continued all night in prayer, all night. And this word here, continued all night, there's a Greek word for it, which I cannot pronounce to you, um, but it is, the, it is a word that you only see here with Luke, as Luke is writing it, a word that medical writers would use for staying up all night with a patient. And when you guys become parents, and all of you are children, right? Uh, when your kids are sick, and thankfully I have a wonderful wife and mother to my kids who does this, because I'm horrible at night, because I'm tired and, and annoyed and cranky. But when your kids are sick, sometimes you got to spend all night up with them, right? And so when our daughter's sick, when our son is sick, my wife is really good at that. And, and Luke understands what this means as, from the medical aspect of it, staying up all night with a patient. So Jesus is staying up all night for one specific thing, not because he's sick, not because he's you know, helping somebody get over a sickness, but because he is seeking the Lord, he is seeking God the Father for answers. And I believe if we read this in context correctly, that we can understand what he is seeking God for. He's not trying to ask him, well, God, what, you know, what, what, sh- what should I do next, right? Like, what, what should I, what kind of college should I go to? And, you know, that's not what Jesus is asking. Although those are perfectly legitimate things to ask the Lord for, in context, what we're going to see is that the next day he calls his disciples to himself so that he can choose 12 specific disciples and apostles that he can pour into and teach and lead, Right? It was very important that he chose these 12 specific disciples. And so through God's wisdom, 
And through God's will, he was able to figure out who these 12 would be. It was a big decision, so he needed big prayer. And he prayed all night. In James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a great verse, guys, because... For me, that's, that's really convicting and challenging because, again, a lot of times I try to do things in my own flesh and I try to work things logically that if I do this step, it'll lead to that step, which will lead to this step. And I, and I try to work things out through my own understanding and through my own logic. And the last thing sometimes I do is to ask God for wisdom and what to do next. And yet James specifically says, if you lack wisdom, which I'm looking out right now, and if there was a mirror, I could see myself too, and I would be clumped in with you, we all lack wisdom, right? We all lack wisdom. Regardless of your experience or your age or your knowledge, we lack wisdom. And it is God who gives us that wisdom, but we have to ask him, of, ask him for it. You know one of the biggest hindrances of prayer is? You know what the first step of prayer is? Praying. Deep, huh? Right? But you know what happens sometimes is that we know, the, we know that we need to pray, yet we don't pray. You know, we say, well, I'll pray about it. Or I did pray about it. And yet we didn't pray about it, or we're not going to pray about it. And yet we need to if we want to receive this wisdom. And, and James says, and the promise here is that if we ask of this wisdom from God, that he gives it to us liberally and without reproach. It will be given to us. But yet, a lot of times the things that we approach God for are things that, that are, are selfish and trying to meet our own fleshly desires. Like, Lord, I want this thing. and I want to be you know, popular. I want to be taller. I want to be this. I want to be that. And yet, God's like, look, here's one thing that I promise I will give you every single time because God's not a genie in a bottle where we can ask him for, we can ask him for anything, but he's not going to give us everything our heart desires, right? But the one thing that he says that he will give without reproach and he will give liberally is this wisdom. And so I don't know if there's something in your life right now where you need that wisdom, you need to understand, you know, some type of decision, an answer to a decision. Well, I believe that you need to approach God with it first. If Jesus does it, obviously how much more should we do it? So he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. The first step in prayer is to pray. Verse 13, and when it was day, so after he was done praying all night, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. Guys, try to focus. So, Understand this, when we think of the disciples of Jesus, we think of the 12, right? Were there more than 12? Yeah, right? I mean, just from this verse and the, what we understand here is that he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12. All right, so there was more than 12. There was a multitude of, of disciples. And we see often in, in the Gospels, too, where there's disciples who come up to Jesus and say, hey, I, I want to follow you. And then Jesus, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, yeah, come follow me, right? What does he say? He challenges them. He tells them, look, this is what's going to happen, right? This, this is how hard it's going to be. You still want to do it? Eh, no, I don't want to do it, right? We've got the guy that didn't want to give up his, his riches, 
right? Jesus said, well, we'll go give it to the poor. And he's like, well, he went away sorrowful because he was rich. He didn't want to give it up to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, look, I want you to follow me, but you can't follow me if you're following something else. And the guy was following his riches, right? And then we got the other guy that said, well, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, well, you know, but I, I can't follow you right now because, you know, my dad's dying, and he, I don't know when he's dying. And it wasn't a matter of, like, my dad's going to die in the next, you know, couple minutes. It's like, it could be in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And Jesus said, well, let the dead bury their dead. Not to be harsh, but just to explain that, hey, look, if you wait to follow me, you will never end up following me. So we've got many people who wanted to be disciples, and Jesus would challenge them and show them this is the cost of following me. And that's something that we need to be aware of, too, that when we follow Jesus, it's not just all, you know, we're skipping in, in daisy fields, although it, it can feel like that because God is that great, but there's going to be tribulation, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be hardship. We are not exempt from the things of this world and the things that happen in this world, right? Like, you know, diseases and all these things that come upon us. We're not exempt from them. So he called his disciples to himself, and he chose 12 of them to be disciples, but not only disciples, but what? Apostles, right? We, we always call them the 12 disciples, which they are, but they're also the 12 apostles. And they get their apostolic authority from Jesus Christ himself. It's not something we see today because Jesus himself is not here appointing apostles. This is something that was very unique and specific to these 12 apostles, plus a couple more that were encountered Jesus, and Jesus specifically gave them this title and this ministry. So what is a disciple? It's more than just a follower. It is a learner. It is a student, right? But in the first century, listen, in the first century, a student did not simply study a subject, but also followed a teacher. And what this means is it adds a personal element to discipleship. That it's not that Jesus is just, you know, my teacher, like at school, and I'm studying under him, but there's also this personal relationship that is happening as we not only learn from him, but we follow him. We do what he says, and we follow in the way that he goes. So he calls his disciples. He chooses 12. Now we know what a disciple is. So now we need to make the distinction between a disciple and apostle because uh, Luke here says that he chose the 12 who he also named as apostles. Right? So there's this distinction between a disciple and an apostle. Now, all disciples are not apostles, but all the apostles were also disciples. Right? It's kind of like, oh shoot, I forget this in geometry. All squares are rectangles, is that right? Yes. But not all rectangles are squares? Correct. Got it, right? Man, I remember that from 10th grade. 10th grade, right? You guys say geometry in 10th grade? Yes. I remember I got that right, too. All right, so, actually, I think I was like the only 10th grader in there. I think the rest were freshmen, but whatever. So a disciple, again, it's a learner, it's a student, it's a follower, but the word apostle means something different. Okay, our English word for apostle is the transliteration of the Greek word apostolos, meaning ambassador or delegate or messenger. It's exactly what Jesus appointed these disciples and these apostles to be, ambassadors and messengers. 
And the verb form means to send away or to send out. Sounds like the Great Commission, right? Right? To, to send out and to make disciples. And that's exactly what their ministry was. To send out these apostles as messengers of God to bring about more disciples as they are sent out from one place to another. They had a specific and particular commission and set of orders. Again, the Great Commission was first given to the apostles and then by extension to the rest of us as the church, as disciples of Jesus. So Jesus chooses 12. Why 12? I don't know, actually. <laughs> I don't know. So, I mean, Jesus is very you know, specific and, and details. Go ahead. I like that. I think that's what I was going to go with, right? There's 12 tribes of Israel. Actually, our Wednesday night crew, how many tribes of Israel are there? 13. There's 13. Come to Wednesday night Bible study and you'll learn these things. Uh, 7 p.m. Nice plug. All right, so there's 13. I can explain why later. I don't want to right now. But in general, there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's a common theme of, of the number 12. I believe this has something to do with it. I'm not going to dive deep into it today. Um, but it was unique that Jesus chose 12 apostles. Again, I don't, or apostles and disciples. I don't believe that he would have chose all of them. He was specific in this number. For again, just so that he would have this intimacy, that he lived life with them, that everything they did, they did together, and they were learning from Jesus on every occasion, every you know daily aspect and every daily thing that Jesus did, they were constantly learning from him. So there was 12, and we see at the end of verse 16 that Judas was one of those 12, Judas Iscariot, and he is the one that committed suicide. And so they lost one, so they went from 12 to 11, right? They went from 12 to 11, but they had to fill that one spot so they can get back to 12. And we see this in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. It says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, one of the things they say as they try to fill that spot of Judas is that there was a certain criteria that these men had to meet. One was that they had to be full of the Holy Spirit. And two, we see here in verse 21 and 22 of Acts chapter 1, is they had to have been with us the entirety of this time, right? That they had to see the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? That they were there, he, they were there with us from the beginning, when uh, the baptism of John, to the, to the day that Jesus was taken up. It was important that this was happened, that they would be witnesses with us to Jesus' resurrection. This was a criteria for those apostles, and that's why I believe that if anyone dubs himself as an apostle today, nobody has seen Jesus in the way that they had seen Jesus. Nobody has been appointed by Jesus the way that these men were appointed by Jesus. I believe that the gift of apostleship is, is, is available today and is used today. But the way in the sense of these unique apostles were chosen and given this, uh, this title, I don't believe it's around today. So he chooses these 12. Let's look at each one. Verse 14. Simon, whom he also named Peter. He's probably the most famous one, and we'll talk about each one. Andrew, his brother. James and John. Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon called the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. 
And every time I'm studying the word, I think, man, it would be so nice if all these men just had different names, right? Or if they weren't just like so close to it because it gets confusing to understand what James is it, right? There's like three different James. There's three different Johns. There's, you know, three different Thomases. I'm just making stuff up. There's two different Judases, right? There's Elisha and Elijah. I mean, like, really? Like, you couldn't have given them, like, completely separate names to not confuse, you know, dyslexic people or just common sense, like, understanding people? Because I get so confused with that. But, I mean, it's common, right? We all, I mean, look at this room. There's probably multiple people in here, you know, with, with the same name. The most common name is, like, probably Joshua. Uh, there's only one Josh in here. Man, usually it's common. But, all right. So Simon, that's the first one we see. Simon is chosen as one of the first disciples and apostles of Jesus. His name is also Peter. Well, that's good. So now we have a name, but now you've changed his name. Now you're making it more complicated, right? His name's Peter. Jesus changes his name. We see this often throughout Scripture. We saw with, with Abram, right? Abram's name was changed to Abraham, right? You know, so oftentimes we see, even from the very beginning, that names were changed, and their names were able to fit who they were. Oftentimes, their personality. And Simon's name is changed to Peter. Now, why Peter? Anybody know? It's in Scripture, yeah. Uh, because, so Peter like the rock of the yes, perfect. So Peter means rock. Exactly. It means rock, right? And Jesus says, it is upon this that I will build my church, right? Upon this, upon this rock. Right? And so Peter is one of the, one of the leaders of these 12. Uh, his name means rock. Jesus switches it to Peter. He was a fisherman. Right, We've studied this already. We saw this as Jesus called him um, as he was a fish, fisherman. He's from the city of Bethsaida, Bethsaida, but eventually was living in Capernaum, and that's when Jesus found him. We saw that story earlier on. He's the apostle and disciple that we know best. He is most often seen in Scripture compared to anyone else. As we look through these 12, some of them we don't really see anymore. We don't know more than just really uh, their name. Um, he seems to be the disciple that speaks up most often, right? He's very uh, bold, let's say, very bold, uh, even interrupts Jesus at times, uh, even rebukes Jesus, right? Like, like <laughs> That's a pretty bold thing to do, to try to rebuke God, you know, a, a perfect man, a perfect God, and he seems to be the leader of these 12. Obviously, Jesus is the leader of them all. But when it comes to the man aspect, he seems to be the leader. So then we get into Andrew. So we got Peter and Andrew, his brother. Well, that's one thing we know about Andrew, is that he's Peter's brother, right? He was, the same, he was from the same place doing the same thing as Peter. We don't know much, you know, we don't know as much of him as we do as Peter. But just like Peter was living in Capernaum, was working with, with Peter as a fisherman when Jesus called in a witness of Jesus Christ. James is more than likely, this James is more than likely not the one that wrote the book of James. The one that we believe that wrote the book of James is actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. So this James is more than likely not the one that wrote the book of James. So now we get into John the brother of James, the younger brother. Fisherman as well, just talked about that. John was known as the beloved disciple, right? Because he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? We see that in the book of John. He also wrote the book of John. 
right? He founded six churches in Asia, or what we would call modern-day Turkey, uh, including Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Thyatira. He was exiled at one point to an island, and the island was called Patmos, where he recorded the revelation of Jesus Christ, where we get the book of Revelation, which was written also by this man named John. John was uh, unique from the other disciples as he was the only one who was not killed. He was the only one that did not die a violent death. Philip. Now we get into Philip and Bartholomew. Philip uh, was also from the same city as Peter and Andrew. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 44. When Jesus called Philip to follow him, Philip went and found Nathanael. And if you guys remember this story, and he told, hey man, the, the Messiah is here. We found him, and he's from Nazareth. And, and Nathanael responds and says, well, that can't be because nothing good comes from there, right? Now, this is not the same Philip that evangelized the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch that we find in the book of Acts. So then we get into Bartholomew, who is also known as, anybody know? I just said his name. Nathaniel, right? He's also known as Nathaniel, which we see in John's Gospels. He was there uh, at the very first uh, miracle that Jesus did. You guys remember the first miracle? Turned water into wine, right, at the, the wedding feast in John chapter uh, 21. He was, or I think it's John chapter 2, and he was also a fisherman. So then we get into Matthew. We've already seen Matthew, right? Matthew is a, what's his job? Or was? Tax collector. His name is also? Starts with an L. Levi. Yeah, he's also called Levi, and he was a tax collector. Now, again, we've, we've got these group of people coming together from, you know, some know each other, some don't. And here's Matthew, who's a former tax collector that a majority of Jews hated. He is also the author of the book of Matthew, and he was born in Nazareth. Then we get into Thomas. Thomas, we sometimes dub him what we call Doubting Thomas. Right, I, I kind of like to call him not doubting Thomas, but unbelieving Thomas, um, because he did not believe that Jesus had rose from the dead when all the other disciples saw it, and somehow he was off getting the pizza or something and missed it when Jesus appeared to them. And like, dude, no, really, we just saw Jesus. He's like, yeah, right, guys, right? You're, you're pulling a fast one on me. He's like, I will not believe it until I see and am able to put my 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 hand and touch his wounds, like put my finger and touch his wounds. He is also. Uh, a fisherman, right? And he's also a man of courage. He's bold. And he always asks the questions that, you know, I feel like we would always want to ask, but we're not bold enough or courageous enough to ask. And yet he is the one that does. In John chapter 11, verse 16, we see the courage that he has in following Jesus as his disciple. It says, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, because he's also a twin. I don't know who his twin is, but he's a twin. And said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Right? He's bold. He was courageous. The other guys probably heard that, and they're like, mm, I don't know about that. Just let him go on his own, and we'll chill right here, right? But what we see, even as, as they were fearful, and they were scared, and even doing and following these things, and that even when Jesus was crucified, they all scattered, right? That eventually... From history, what we come to know, besides James, we know that he was, he was murdered. The rest of them we see also were murdered, except for John, because he 
died just as an old man, that they all died a martyr's death, that they were all bold and courageous enough to follow Jesus in his footsteps. All right, so then we get into James, the son of Alphaeus. He is known in church history as James the Less, basically just to distinguish between the different Jameses, <laughs> right? So we've got the James, the son of Zebedee, James the Less, or James the son of Alphaeus, and then we've also got James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. All these different Jameses. Uh, he may have been, which I don't know, but he may have been the brother of Matthew, because they both, it both says that they were sons of Alphaeus. Right? So here we see that James is the son of Alphaeus. Matthew, in Mark chapter, chapter 2, we see Matthew is also called the son of Alphaeus. Then we get to Simon, who is called the Zealot. Right? Mark calls him si- Simon the Canaanite. As a zealot, he was either a very passionate man about following God, or more likely, it's because he was a member of the Zealots, which was a radical Jewish uh, political group who hated the Romans and would later revolt against the Roman occupation. Then we get into Judas, who is not the Judas that you're thinking of. This is a different Judas, the son of James. Okay? He's sometimes referred to as Thaddeus. Okay? So he also has a... <laughs> I know it's really hard to follow, but I'm trying to give you insight of who, who these guys are. So we don't know much about him other than that he goes by Thaddeus sometimes, or Judas, the son of James. Then we get into the last disciple, the twelfth disciple, the most infamous disciple, Judas Iscariot, who Luke tells us here also became a traitor. That Jesus specifically, remember, because Jesus prayed all night, right? He sought wisdom and counsel from God to choose these twelve men purposefully and selectfully. And he chose Judas Iscariot for a reason. You think, well, why would he choose Judas if he knew that he would become a traitor? Well, God uses even the things that we think that are bad for our good, right? Romans 8, 28. And he used what Judas had, had purposed in his heart for the good, for his good, right? And so Iscariot um, is thought to mean man of Kiroth, which is a town in Judea. Uh, so we believe Judas is from Judea. He was also the treasurer, which meant that he basically he held all the money for the disciples, um, we see that is something that he really struggled with, that he was all about the influence and the desire and the wanting of money, that even he, he sold Jesus and gave out Jesus uh, for just 30 pieces of silver. And he would betray Jesus, and then what we would see is that he would end up killing himself. And Jesus later in John chapter 6 He tells his disciples that he chose them, that he specifically chose these men, and he knew. It wasn't, again, it wasn't like that he was caught off guard with Judas, and that he didn't know what was in Judas's heart, and he didn't know that this wasn't all planned. He used it for his good, and he knew that Judas would betray him. In John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered and said to them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And he says, And one of you is a devil. He says that about Judas Iscariot. So as we look at these 12 men, none of them like really stand out in regards to their experience and who they are, right? These are just really normal men, really ordinary men. And so one of the things that we can glean from this, other than just understanding who these men are, is that God can use anyone, right? That God can use anyone. God can use a fisherman. He can use a tax collector. He can use a farmer. He can use students. He can use you from any background and any place that you have been from. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, this is a very comforting and encouraging verse. It says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that which are mighty. And, it, and it's not that God can't use strong men and women, but it's that he uses us even as ordinary men and women. That he can use young people all the way from the age of 11 in here to an 80-year-old. It doesn't matter about the experience or where you've come from. If he chooses us and we are surrender and submit to him, we can be used mightily by him. I love that. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. That's really cool. I love this. We see Peter and John at one point in their life, they were arrested because they healed a lame man. And they were preaching to people about Jesus. And they gave a brief and bold explanation about what they had just done. And they had proclaimed that salvation could only come through Jesus Christ, which he is the only way. There is only one way. And it was through Jesus Christ whom they had crucified, which he was the way to salvation. And Luke records in Acts chapter 4, in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John in regards to this situation, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, untrained men, they marveled. And they realized what? That they had been with Jesus. How cool is that? How awesome. Like, to me, that's really cool. Because for my position, I'm, I'm considered a, a pastor, but in, in reality, there's only really one pastor of a church, and that would be our senior pastor. And he's the one that leads the, the earthly flock, which is us. But ultimately, he submits to Jesus. So, so really, Jesus is, is, is our pastor in a sense. So I just have this title and this position just because it it's, gives us a simple understanding of my role. But in reality... But, but what has happened is when I, when I was given this role, I had many people come up to me and ask me, okay, so where'd you go to school? I was like, Fuqua High School, right? Like, no, 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 but like, where'd you, what, seminary, where'd you get your degree? I'm like, dude, I don't have a degree, right? And not that I'm like this, you know, spokesperson for the uneducated, untrained men and that I'm the best of the best of them. No, no, like, but the point is that like, you don't, God can use anyone. And God will use you if you submit to him, regardless of your training and your knowledge and, you know, how good you are at public speaking or how good you are at talking to people one-on-one or this or that. God, God can transform you and use you. He can even use the things that you think aren't good, he can use for his good, right? The things that you think are quirky about you, God doesn't necessarily need to change them. He can use them. You just think that they're bad things, and so God used these men, and they marveled at them because they were like, well, these are untrained, uneducated men. They're looking at them, and they're like, man, isn't that the fishermen? But yet, they're speaking with such power and authority. And it says they realized that they had been with Jesus. I mean, like, what an amazing thing for somebody to realize. That they were able to do these things and say these things and understand and believe in God because they had been with Jesus. And so, again, if we surrender to Jesus and we are with him, that is better than any, you know, formal education that you can get, any seminary, any degree, any anything. Now, I'm not saying those things are bad. Go ahead and do them, whatever, but they will mean absolutely nothing if you have not been with Jesus. And that's what I'm trying to get at. And that's something that we have been studying for the past few weeks in regards to the difference between religion and Jesus and being in a relationship with Jesus and being 
with Jesus. And you're thinking, well, how can I be with Jesus? They got to hang out with him every day and eat lunch and have dinner and all these things. I haven't been able to do that. Well, one, we receive the Holy Spirit, right? So we, we're already unified in that aspect that who can know the things of man except for the spirit of man? Who, know, who can know the things of God except for the spirit of God? But we've been given the spirit of God. So we connect with God in that way. And the other way is simply through his word. Is that how we're able to be with Jesus and to pray, right? How was Jesus with, the, with God, the Father? Well, we see he spent all night praying to him. What made them special was not their education, was not their gifts and their talents. What made them special is that they had been with Jesus. And if you hear anything today, that is the most important thing that you can hear. Let's try and finish up. Verse 17, and he came down with them and he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. So these crowds, they came for two reasons. They had two motives. And we see this in verse 17, that they came to hear him right? Because of what he was preaching, what he was teaching was authority and it was truth. They desired to hear it and want it. They craved it. They needed it. The second thing is that they came to be healed of their diseases. And what we see is that they were healed. We see at the verse, end of verse 18, and they were healed. Does Jesus heal today? He does. He does. Does he heal everyone? No. Does that make him an, an unloving God? No. And I don't have time to get into all this, and I wish we could. If you come on Wednesday nights, this is one of the things that we're going to start doing, more of the, the apologetics aspect of our faith. Um, nudge him so he wakes up. One of the things that we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to have questions that you guys can ask, and they can be anonymous. I'll probably have, like, something that you guys can write and put in, and we're going we're gonna to dive through these questions because one of the things that we've been doing on Wednesday night is trying to understand how a loving God in the Old Testament would basically say, I want you to kill every living, breathing thing uh, in, in the land of Canaan, right? And so we, we tried to talk through it. Okay, well, if God says that he loves us and that he sent his only begotten son to die for us, yet here in this story, he's telling the Israel nation to go and basically just kill everything, how is that a loving God, right? And so that's one of the things that we discuss. And if you want to know the answer to that, that's, I would encourage you to look it up and try to figure it out on your own. And if you can't, come to me and we'll talk about it. But we're going to try and answer a lot of these hard questions, right? Is God an unloving God if he doesn't heal you? That's a great question. And, and a lot of times we will then say, well, if he doesn't, and there's a lot of people who believe this, if he doesn't do that, then how is he a loving God? God. One of the thing, first things that we can understand is that God does not heal everyone. Another thing that we can understand is that God is love. The, the two are not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. They work together. So if, if, if that means if God doesn't heal you or someone else, that doesn't negate and doesn't mean that God is no longer loving. He is still loving. Okay, They don't cancel each other out. God is love, yet God does not heal everyone. We see this example with Paul. Paul himself. Like, if God was going to heal anyone, it would be Paul, because Paul did all this ministry for him, 
And it's like, dude, like, can't this guy catch a break? Because then you read in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of all the things that Paul went through. All the things. It's like, uh, I was, um, oh gosh, you remember the things he went through that he said he went through? He was shipwrecked multiple times. He was bit by a snake. He was uh, thrown in jail. He was stoned, uh, like, like stoned. Um, he was so many other things. And then, and then at the very end of this long list of things that like, if I had gone through one of them, I'd be like, dude, I'm retiring from, from this. Um, he's like, he goes on to say, ah, you know what? Forget this. Why am I trying to just say it when I can just find it? Second Corinthians chapter 11. Check this out. Uh, right here. In verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure in prisons, more frequently in deaths often from the Jews five times. Okay. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So 39, 39, you know, whippings five times. He received that three times. I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three times. I was shipwrecked. I mean, like after the second shipwreck, I'm like, no more boats. (laughs) A night and a day I, was, I have been in the deep, right? In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in the perils of the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in the perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. I couldn't even just take the cold. And then he goes on to say this. Besides the other things... What comes upon me daily, just, just the daily things that he had to go through. Right? I don't even think he listed everything because he couldn't even keep track of it all. And yet we get into chapter 12 when he then explains that he has what he calls this thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. And I love that because then, you know, if he had said, man, I, I really struggle with um, heartburn, right? <laughs> Then it's like, okay, well, then all of us who don't struggle with this heartburn, we couldn't relate to it. And yet Paul doesn't say what it is. He says it's the thorn in this flesh. And he gives this great insight to as, why, as to why Jesus, as why God doesn't take this thorn in the flesh, whether it's some type of chronic illness or disease or disability, God doesn't take it away for a reason. And we see this in chapter 12. Verse 9, or you actually see it in verse 8, we said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he, he brought it to the Lord, which we should do. Our prayer doesn't, doesn't change God's mind, right? Our, our prayer, more often than not, is there for us to change us. And so he gets his answer that, that God is not going to take this away from him, but God told him and said to, Pete, said to Paul in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, for any of you that have gone through some type of ailment or disability or anything, you know, there's there's two ways of approaching it, two two perspectives of either, you know, God, you you hate me, you've given this to me, I'm gonna reject you. Or you can say, God, you have given this to me for a reason. It is your purpose and your will. And through that time, you realize that God can strengthen you through the grace that He has given. that now that I, I am, I'm at this point where I can't do anything, doctors can't do anything, the only thing I can do is to rely and trust in Jesus. 
And more often than not, we would not get to that place if, if we hadn't gone through this certain type of thing. But that's not also to say that God won't heal you. God can. God is able. And we see it often throughout Scripture, and we see it often even today. It says, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Look, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James chapter 5, verse 13 and 16 says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, I'm running out of time. One of the things about sicknesses is that sickness and disease don't come upon us because of your sin. Right? Now, how do I explain that? It could be a consequence of your sin, right? Let's say, like, you smoke or something for your whole life, and then you get lung cancer. Well, where do you think that came from, right? Probably you're, you're smoking. But we know that, that your sin, like sin in general, you don't receive a sickness or disease because of sin. We see this example with the, the man that was blind, and, and the disciples said, well, is he that way because he sinned or because of his parents' sin? And, and Jesus said, by no means, he says this man was, was this way because, so that the works of God could be revealed in him, right? So sometimes these infirmities and these things that we have, they, they are used for good. But they don't always come about because of sin. And we're not always healed because we have a lack of faith either, right? We could have all the faith. We have the most faith out of anybody in the world. Yet if it's not God's will, our faith can't change his will, right? So just because... You prayed, and it did not come about the way that you wanted. doesn't mean that you lacked faith, right? But we are to ask in faith. And if he hears us, and it's in his will, he can and he will heal. does not mean he is not a loving God. He is a purposeful and righteous God, and there is a reason. And we don't always understand the reason. When it comes to these hardships, guys, because you will go through them, you may be going through them, one of the things I can encourage you with is that there will always be questions of why. Like, why, God? Why did you have to let this happen? Why, why do I have to have this? I don't know. Maybe God will reveal to you. Maybe he won't. One of the things that you need to rest on is the things that you do know about God and not trying to be caught up in the things that you don't know. Because there is a lot of mysteries to who God is because of our, our finite being and who we are. And some things that God hasn't completely revealed to us because it's not necessary for us. So rest in the things that you do know and the things that God has revealed to you about himself. We know that he's a loving God. Let's start there. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for just meeting us here. Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak to us after we leave this room. Lord, that you would use us for your glory, or that you be with these kids as they, they make their ways throughout the school year and their schools, their jobs, their sports. 
Lord, that they would be courageous and bold and stand firm in their faith and for what is right. And Lord, I pray that you would use them mightily. Lord, I pray that you would continue to mold us into your disciples, that we'd understand more and more about you and fall more and more in love with you. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, for redeeming us. I pray that you'd be with us as we go through our discipleship course and that you would uh, just be glorified through it. So, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.